This is episode number 27, Finding Home, with Ron Baltangas. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohit, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of adoptees and foster youth who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before I introduce today's guests, I'd like to make a brief announcement and invite all of our listeners to our upcoming seminar on June 23rd in Austin, Texas. A seminar where you'll have a chance to connect with hundreds of people who are going through a similar transformation that you are. A seminar where you'll hear from speakers from all over the country, including Jim Bricker, Anne Heffron, Leslie Johnson, Adele Harris, Joshua Banks, Peter Stropel, and myself included. For more information, please go to overcomingodds.today forward slash hear me now. Now, let's get back to our guest. He was in real physical danger. He said, There was a time when I used to think that my father was going to kill me. So, I used to stay up late at night, tucked in a corner of the room. At school, people used to ask Ron Baltongas about the bandages and bruises, but he was too afraid to tell the truth. So, he lied. Without further ado, please welcome Ron Baltongas. Ron, welcome to the show. And what I would like you to do is, for those who aren't familiar with your story, could you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and your experience with foster care and your transition from where you were born to the States? So uh, first off, thank you for having me. Um, I think that it's amazing what you're doing. And, you know, I I know you already impacted lives and I think you're going to continue to impact more lives. Um, I mean, you've already been positive impact in my life just from hearing your story that are moving. Um, you know, I think it's cool as someone who's kind of shared the same similar story and some of the similar struggles, you know, you understand it on a deeper level. And, um, so, you know, for me, my story starts just like you in a foreign country. Uh, I was in the Democratic Republic of Congo and, um, Long story short, the country has just been very chaotic, um, you know, because of the whole dictatorship transition to republic, you know, democratic country and mm-hmm. all that. And so chaos breaks out and a lot of families are affected by that. Um, and everyone's fleeing the country and they go into different countries. So, um, and, and that's, you know, we seek asylum in America. It was my mother. Um and six siblings, and my father was already gone. And so, um, gets to the United States after a very, very long, crazy journey. Um, you know, a lot of people aren't able to get to America by themselves, let alone, you know, a mother with six, with seven children. So the, the fact that we're here is just a miracle in itself already. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's, that was just a kind of a good illustration of what strength 
and resilience looks like, you know, for my mother. And, um, and uh, you know, when we get to the States, um, ended up being a lot of separation and, and turmoil within my family because my father was a very, um, very abusive, mm. very physically abusive and, um, you know, emotionally, verbally, you know, all that, just, you know, and, and um, you know, I, I went through years and years of counseling and therapy and, and, and the constant message that I had with different counselors was just kind of like, you know, to offer my father grace because you, know, you have to understand, and, and I say this now, like, I think my father had good intentions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just think his way of executing could have been a little bit better. And, you know, as parents, uh, now that I'm, I'm a father to eight-month-old baby, you know, baby Jane, you know, you learn and understand that, like, we want the best for our children, and um, we do what we know. And so what he knew was violence, and what he knew was harsh discipline. Um, you know, he grew up in a country and in uh, an environment that you had to sink or swim. Uh, very cutthroat, and that's how he knew how to raise as children and so but you know just like a lot of people who come to different to america there's a lot of culture shock and there's a lot of cultural i'd say culture imbalances that don't really add up mm-hmm. you know for example i remember in sixth grade here in the states i'm still kind of learning english and still learning the, the culture um you know I, I was a sixth grade choir for my first my first um my first actual you know organized choir groups and it was the only ever organized choir group I was ever a part of um you know my teacher was trying to talk to me I would look her I, w- I would not look her in the eyes and she was like that's impolite mm-hmm. you look adult in your in the eyes when you're talking to me and I'd go and I'd go home and I was not supposed to look him in the eyes like I was supposed to like look down and not respond you know just things like that that like makes a kid not know how should I act? Because I hear one thing in the home setting, one here. You know, the Americans are doing one thing, and at home is one thing. And so uh, it's just a lot of the issues I say come from the cultural clashing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way that culturally it's okay to discipline a kid in the Congo is not culturally acceptable here in America. And that's where a lot of the issues come from. Um, and so a lot of which, you know, I agree, a lot of the ways that my father would discipline me extremely extremely abusive and um now as i've gotten older i realized how inexcusable a lot of that stuff was and um so uh, i used to lie about it and because i was very afraid of him um for a time frame in my life i was certain that you know my father was going to kill me so i'd stay up late at night kind of tucked in the corner of the room just afraid and when people would ask me why i had bandages or limping or you know, what was going on, I would just lie about it because I was afraid, I didn't want him to find out. And so, I remember when I finally opened up, a counselor brought me in, she'd asked me what was going on, because I had a bandage in my head. Um, you know, and for a while, I, I did things that I thought, um, I was just, I thought I was just a dis- dysfunctional child, like I didn't know how to function properly. And um, But really, what was going on was, I was doing things that kids do sometimes. Like, I remember I got the carpet wet, and what my father would do, he would do things like, you know, those Coca-Cola bottles um, and the beer bottles. He would take the tops of the bottles and he'd put the sharp side on the 
the ground. There's a bunch mm-hmm. of them on the ground, and you have to get on your knees on them, and you have to hold like a heavy object. And if your elbows start to bend, they just start whipping you. I remember you know, one time he like whipped me until my back was like bleeding, and and um, my mother she would just cry and not say anything or do anything because again in the culture it's a woman's job to cook, clean, and make babies and seen and not heard. You know, women are like second class citizens. And, you know, that's something that I'm not okay with. And anytime I'd voice my opinion about how, like, kind of quietly, like, tell my mom or my siblings, like, you know, this isn't right. Like, I was I was the one that was kind of ca- causing the revolution. And, that, and then it became very personal between me and him. Mm-hmm. I, I refused to. It had became a point in my life where I was like, we're not supposed to be treated like this. And, and there was another time where um, I was playing the PlayStation 2 longer than I was supposed to. Like, kids do that sometimes, you yeah. know. And he came in the room, he unplugged the system, he started yelling and stuff, and he was just yelling at me, and I was just standing there. And then he threw it at me, and it just smashed me across my face. And then I remember I was just in shock. Like, he just threw this whole game system in my head. And I was, like, a kid, and um, I was in middle school. And then I just remember I felt this really, really freezing cold feeling. And I touched my face, and it was, like, blood everywhere. I was, like, my whole face was covered in blood. And... You know, he left, and then and, um, he was coming back to the room. He came back to the room. I thought he was going to apologize, but he said, like, I wish it would have just crushed your whole skull. And then he left. And so that that's kind of like what my experience was with my father. And then once the, the counselor brought me back in one time, she asked me what happened. I lied because my dad was looking at me because he was in the room. And then he left. And then she brought me back in afterwards. She was like, what's really going on? And I kept lying. It wasn't until, like, that next year. A different school uh counselor brought me in and then she told me you know you can you can trust me i won't tell anyone the biggest lie i've ever heard in my entire life um and and so i told her what happened and next thing i know i told her one thing and another thing i never shared all this information with anybody before next thing i know she's crying like crazy and, and i start crying she's a big mess everyone's crying you know and and i went on about my business and then next thing i know the police gets involved child protective services gets involved and um and that's that's whenever like the whole homeless shelter, being homeless, foster care, that all came into the picture after I finally spoke up about what was going on. And uh, See, I spent a whole lot of time bouncing around from a lot of different folks. Hmm. Um, interesting. And also interesting that you mentioned, um, you know, just abusive relationships because I can somewhat relate to that when I lived in the orphanage. Um, living in an orphanage there's a lot of physical and mental abuse that happens and i think one of the reasons is because and you might have experienced this within your family um because you know they don't want you to go inside of the boundaries they want you to they want you to be kept inside of this um circle that they've created because it's going to be that much harder if you um, start disobeying the laws then other people are going to look up to you and they're going to start disobeying whatever it is that the authorities are trying to tell you so there's not going to be that sense of structure, but one of the things that you've mentioned, which I think is important to note, is having that courage to speak up when you are facing abuse, whether that's physical or mental. Like for me, to be completely honest, the three years I was at the orphanage, I never spoke up to the times when my sister came to visit me or um, my mom or anyone else. And the reason why was because, well, first of all, the, the meetings were... Um, there was what, what one place that we were allowed to meet with our family. 
and it just happened to be so across from the room that the director used to be in. And so in my mind, I always had a conscious thought, well, if I say this, is there a possibility that the director may hear it? And so things like that have kept me quiet for the entire three years I was there. So then when I reconnected with my sister after I left the country officially, I, I mentioned all the things that did happen, the times when we were beat for wetting the bet, the times when we were beat for um, just doing things that, like you said, normal kids do, like staying up past 9 o'clock to watch a cartoon or um, running, like in my case, I ran away to go see my family. I wanted to see my family. I, I didn't really, as, as a 9-year-old, you don't really understand the concept of, okay, you go into an orphanage system which says that you in a way are their property and you, you don't get that opportunity to see your parents, um, that doesn't really click with you. you. You kind of think of like, okay, the, the orphanage is this um, place in between, but you still have an opportunity to see you know, your, your parents and your sister. And so when I ran away and I was punished for that, I didn't, I didn't really understand it, but then I kind of had to um, adjust to the way they taught me. So the, yeah. question, the question I would have for you is, where did you find that hope and inspiration during those times to look forward and say, and recreate this vision in your mind that a better day will come? It's funny you say that. Is that I actually, I did the whole running away too, to, it's funny, I ran away to my father. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. You know, because as a kid, you, you don't really. A lot of people say, like, even if it's like sexual abuse or domestic violence between a couple, and they're like, why did she just leave? Or why does it's not that simple? You know, like, um, a kid just comes for a relationship with his family. It's, I mean, that's pretty normal. And mm-hmm. even, um, we run back to the people that hurt us because we love them and we long to have that relationship with them. Um, and so, but in the midst of kind of all my adversity, I would say there are different things that kind of played a role for me. I mean, I, I did, I went through some very dark times where, they, you know, felt very hopeless. But the thing that kept me pushing was um, kind of like it's two sided. On one side, it's like very, um, my mother was and is an extremely, extremely spiritual person. And she was always, um, you know, her take on everything was like, and anything bad happened, even to the point where it like seemed, it sounded very like, okay, she sounded a little crazy. You know, she's very spiritual. And in the sense of like, if something is wrong, like, like I don't have any food. She's like, oh, just pray about it. Just take it to God. And, uh, or she's like, just hanging in there, pray about it, take it to God, to everything. That's literally her response to any and every issue she had in her life. Just pray about it and take it to God. And, and sometimes kind of like, I don't think praying is going to help me right now, but okay. <laughs> you know, but, but that's just, and I think that her kind of creating that, that sense of, um, hope and, and, and through God that, that even though there are times where I was like, there's no such thing as God, because if there was, I wouldn't be going through this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that even though she still planted that seed in me, that 
Um, there is something bigger out there that looks up for us. Um, I think that played a role in it. The other part is, I think, the two important lessons in life. My take on what the two most important lessons in life is. You know, um, you know. I, now I, I go to schools and I share my story and I speak to students and encourage them and kind of help them if they're in dark places. And the two most important lessons, after I, I talk for like 30 minutes to an hour, but I'm like, if there's two things I want you guys to take away from me, it's number one, most important role in life is understanding that life is unfair and life is difficult. Mm-hmm. Because I think that the sooner you can understand and come to realization that life is unfair, the better off you'll be. But on the same token, the second most important lesson in life is understanding that even though life is difficult and it's unfair, you don't have to go through it alone. Mm. You know? Um, so the reality that life is difficult and also understanding that we don't have to go through it alone is I think those two things really helped me a lot. And the way that I illustrate what life and its adversities and challenges looks like, it's kind of like you're sitting there on a bench press and you're about to bench this weight. And this weight is what life's struggles. And you know, look on the right side, you've got a hundred pound plate and the left side, you got a hundred pound plate. Now, like regardless of who's around you, that weight doesn't change. You know, the difficulties stay the same weight. But if you allow yourself to be surrounded by a community and you have one person helping you lift on this side, one person helping you lift on this side, what you've gone through doesn't change and what you're going to go through doesn't change. You're still going to go through adversity in life. But when you surround yourself with a community, you don't have to care. You don't have to bench press, bench press all that weight by yourself. Mm. It's a lot of weight off of you. You know, I think that we were designed for community. You literally can't make a human being by yourself. Yeah. You know, like yep. We're designed for, for companionship. And, um, you know, when you go through dark times, it's very easy to believe the lie that we are alone. And it's very easy to, to be defensive and put your guard up and feel like you can't trust people. And um, it's me against the world kind of mentality. And that's, that's uh, I think that's uh, it's like spiritual suicide. You know, it's the quickest way to, to lose hope is mm-hmm. believing that you're alone. Um, and even if it's one person... Like, heck, even if it's a pet, like a dog, whatever it is, you know, like understanding that, like, you don't have to go through, you know, you're not alone. Someone so else other than yourself. Right. And, you know, and I like to think to myself as well, you know, right now there are like 8 billion plus people in the world. There's got to be at least one person who's gone through what I'm going through and got out of it. And the way that I think, I'm like, if one person can do it, I can do it too. Yep. You know, uh, and it's the good thing is it's unfortunately millions and probably billions of people have gone through similar struggles and they've gotten through it, you know? And so that should be to me enough encouragement that you can get through it as well. Hmm. How did you first find your, your voice? Like, you know, in my case, when I first started this um, journey of, developing that courage and sharing my story to not only help myself heal, but also help other people heal throughout this process. You know, I, I started with, um, um, just like you said, like one person uh, at the time I was a good friend of yeah. mine. And then I expanded that fr- that to two or three people. And then I started, and then that gave me enough confidence where I could share it with strangers who um, at the time were very receptive of, of my story. But I also knew that there might've been, 
and this is just what you said about life being unfair, there might have been um, things like judgment or um, some of the other, you know, feelings that evoke from a story like that. So, like, do you, how did you do that? And do you have any advice for people who are about to start that journey? Um, hmm, never been asked a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Um, so, like you said, uh, it, for me, it started one person, you know, kind of one person sharing that story. Just like singing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you sing for one person and then they kind of give you good feedback and gives a little bit of an encouragement, like, okay, and sing for a couple more people. And so it was a combination of just progressively, it's a time thing, you know, um, to people who are wanting to share their story or um, don't know if they'll ever have that voice. It's just, they have to understand that like it's a time thing, you know, it's something that gradually grows over time. And then, um, also, just maybe from guest speakers at school or YouTube videos or people speaking about their story, mm-hmm. um, learning about how, what other people have gone through and, and overcome, you know, um, it's very it's very impactful in, in being able to share your story. You know, you read about a woman like Oprah Winfrey or Joyce Meyer who was you know, sexually taken advantage of by family, and you hear those stories, and you hear how they got through, and it's like, man, they can get through that. I can get through it. And I want to encourage other people. I want to, well, if Oprah Winfrey did to me, I want to do that to someone else, and it becomes a stickative thing. Like, you know, um, when you share your story, and you hear people react to it positively, it's like, I'm going to do this again, and again, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, um, and, you know, and sometimes, especially when you've, you've gone through like a tremendous amount of stuff, you, you're gonna have those nights and those times where it's just like, um, creeps up on you and you remember what you went through. Or um, a lot of the lies that you used to believe at the time kind of creep up in you or something. And while you know that, you know, you're, you truthfully know that it's not the truth, but you know, my mind is a funny place. And um, but then moments like when you read that message that someone sent you that email or, Someone comes up to you after you're done speaking and you hear that, that helps give you um, a voice. When people who feel voiceless come to you to express what they're going through, that kind of fuels your voice. Mm. Um, what were you most afraid of when it came to sharing your story? Um, I think part of Part of my, my my fear was people were going to think I'm crazy, you know, um, because I thought to myself, and I grew up in Plano, Texas, very different from the Congo. It's a very affluent area, very, you know, people with dads driving BMWs and, you know, people have really, really big homes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of like, are like, well, I don't want to be the oddball who just like, you know, is wanting the pity party and like. And, and then, like, I know, I'm like, if I share some of their stories, people are not going to believe me. I'm crazy. Um, that was a big worry for me. And and um, and also because I know that, like, my father would respond with, oh, that's not true all the time. Mm. Like, and so he was, he, 
he would um whenever we would be in a counseling session or something to this day even though my family later on in life much later on in life family my mother and my siblings also kind of accepted the truth and they stood with me i remember i was the i was the black sheep that was crying about what was going on and my siblings were afraid and so they weren't so i looked crazy for a long time later on you know my family came to me they're like hey you know they came to my place they're like you know we're really sorry you have to go through a lot of that alone without us and um you know we were all abused but i was the only one that was like calling it out um, and so my, one of my big fears was like, people are going to think I'm crazy because like my dad's saying, I never abused him until this day. He says, I never abused anybody. And then my family was not, they weren't accept, they weren't denying or, um, they weren't, um, approving or denying. So I looked crazy. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, to that, I just think that like, to people who feel, if, if anybody had that same fear that I had, I would say look crazy all day long. It doesn't matter. Share that story because you have no idea. You know, sharing my story is what, who knows, you know, we don't know all life's possible outcomes, but, you know, the way that my father used to abuse me, I wouldn't have, if, if my life was in danger. And for me to share that story, that could have saved my life. Interesting that and you so, say that, um, because sharing story mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, no, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that I I actually had similar thoughts right before I started sharing my story, and one of the questions I was asking myself was, well, what would my family, the one that still lives in Russia, think of this? And exactly the same thoughts ran through my head. Well. If it came to the fact that when I shared the fact, you know, when I was on the street or when I had to steal food, um, that they would just say, no, that that's not true. Because if you think about it from just a human being perspective, that's a very harsh um, or not harsh, but a hard truth to accept. You know, especially if, if you were someone who was in the position of caring for that child. So in a way, it kind of makes sense when you look at it and you understand why um, people wouldn't want to accept that hard truth but at the same time one of the things you said and I 100% agree with you I think it's up to us those that have lived through that experience to find that courage and share that story because you never know who it's going to impact and as long as we know in our minds that it's going to impact at least one person then I think that's all that matters. Because from there, that one person can share it and that will impact another and another and another. And you never know. You literally never know what's going to happen after that. Mm-hmm. Um, final thought for today's episode, and that is when the odds are completely against you, what are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to? Um, I 
when the odds are stacked against me, I switch my mind. Oftentimes in life, when I make decisions or I'm, I'm approaching something, I'm thinking probability. How probable is it for me to pursue this dream? How probable is it for me to make this business? How probable is this blah, 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 blah. You know, regardless of what it is, it's, it's a probable thing. You know, um, how probable is it that I can eat this Chipotle, you know? Um, but whenever the odds are stacked against you, you kind of have to switch mentality. For me, anyway, I switch from probable to possible. I think um, because when you think probable and, and odd stacks against you, it's probably improbable. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm probably not going to get out of this situation. It's probably not going to get better. And you're, it's our stuff in mind. If your mind convinces you that you, you know you've lost the fight, you probably already lost the fight. You know, um, and so I switch from pros- probable to possible. Like, is it possible for me to get out of this? You know, sometimes like um, American Idol, for example, I was top 24 finalist. There was like hundreds of thousands of people when I made the top 24. It, you know, when I started out at the very beginning, and it's like, is it probable for me to become the top 24? One would probably say, probably not, you know, but is it possible, you know, and it, it is a possibility. And so what you do is you hang on to the possibility you know, versus hanging on to the probability. And that's what helps me, um, you know, when I'm like, is it possible that I can pass this class? If the answer is yes, then you focus on that and you work really hard on the possibility. And, you know, is it possible that sharing my story might change someone's life? Is it possible that I could overcome the, because it causes a lot of mental trauma when you go through abuse. Is it possible that I can overcome this? Is it possible? And, and so what I would encourage you to do is um, don't be too focused on what's probable and focus on more what's possible because um, a lot of things in life are possible. And we have collectively as people proven time and again that possibility sometimes is more important than probability. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes, featured stand-up and speak-up stories, and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll look forward to having you next week.